So this morning, please take your Bibles, take your devices, take your handout and turn it over, whatever you want to do, but would you go with me to Philippians chapter 2? I will say this, that today is one of the most dynamic passages that you will find in all of the scriptures. And we get to take the next half hour, 40 minutes or so, and saturate our lives in the beauty of this passage. So I hope you're ready. Um, Philippians chapter 2. On this journey, especially those visiting with us, this journey through Philippians, um, we have been overwhelmed with this concept. I already mentioned it, but the gospel-centered life that is practically applied in unity. And how, does that, how is that unity accomplished? As you go through Philippians 1, traveling into Philippians 2, you find that unity is accomplished by God's grace through humility. If you turn your hand out over, you can see on the back sort of a, a map of where we've been. We've been talking of this unity through humility. And last week, and actually I'll read a couple of these verses, starting in verse 2. This kind of shares with us, uh, summarizes this, this theme Paul says this to this church of Philippi, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his, or to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is where we've been in this passage. Unity through humility. And then last week, if you remember, this beautiful passage, just a passage of degrees, sharing with us the humility of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you remember back to what we talked of last week, we looked at this, that to provide unity between a holy God and a broken world, a needy people, a human race of needy, rebellious people, what did Jesus Christ do? In this passage of degrees, we we see in verses 6 and 7, he emptied himself. Very clearly, we talked last week that he did not empty himself of his divinity, of his divine nature. He emptied himself of his divine privilege, and there's a whole lot that goes into that. But God could not, through Christ, have redeemed the human race if Jesus would have laid aside his divinity, his divine nature. So we talked of that last week. Um, In order to fully redeem, we needed to have a Savior that was fully God and fully man at the same time. So that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He emptied himself of divine privilege. Then in this passage of degrees, it's almost like a wow factor that Paul shares this, and it's almost like, and here's some more, and here's some more, and here's some more. So what's the some more here? Christ emptied himself of divine privilege. Then Christ not only did that, but he took on the form of a bondservant. Not only that, as you continue on in the passage, he took on the form of a bondservant. Unless we think that Jesus Christ somehow was teleported to earth as a 30-year-old and just died and then went back to heaven, no. Paul says, no, he was born as a helpless human being, dependent on the protection and provision of other human beings. Uh, there were no shortcuts in God's redemptive plan. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus Christ did not cut 
corners when it comes to the redemptive plan. As the author of Hebrews says, he identified completely with us. In all points he was tempted like we are, but without sin. That's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then last week we went on in the passage to see not only did he empty himself of divine privilege, not only did he take on the form of a servant, not only was he born, but then we see it advanced even further. He became obedient to the point of death. And then the next thought in the passage of degrees is it wasn't just any death, it was the Roman cross, the agony and humiliation of the Roman cross. As we talked last week, Roman citizens had the opportunity to opt out of the cross. Why? Because they didn't want to drag the citizenship of Rome through the mud with such a humiliating death. And when we talk about the humility of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this is real. He suffered the agony and the humiliation of the Roman cross. Now today, lest in any way we would be tempted to undervalue the supreme nature of Christ, Paul says this, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Would you follow along with me? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow! I mean, I almost feel like I could shut our Bibles and I could go sit down because this is so powerful, this text. That lest we think that Jesus Christ in all his humility lost some points in the divine thing, absolutely not. We have here an overwhelming argument from the Apostle Paul that lest you devalue Jesus, let me share some more of the story with you. Yes, Jesus Christ is an example, but he's so much more than an example. That's this passage. I just want to share this as sort of a personal illustration. This passage is absolutely near and dear to my heart. Um, As a senior in high school, Uh, A lot of us remember back to that time in our lives. A lot of decisions to be made. A lot of of thoughts about values in this world. Um, I was was playing a very high-level soccer, traveling around the whole country, looking to potentially play that uh, more in depth on the professional level, thinking about college and the recruits and all of that stuff that goes with that. God had clearly brought me into relationship with him through his grace and I loved God with all my heart but thinking through soccer thinking through life thinking through priorities I had a a network of friends that a lot of them respected me for my relationship with God through Christ maybe some of them would even think of me as like the Jesus dude you know but I remember in my heart thinking why don't you receive Jesus He's altogether beautiful. And as a senior in high school, navigating through this worldview stuff, thinking, come on, would you just receive this Christ? He loves you. Navigating through these thoughts as a senior in high school, thinking, is this Jesus worth it? Is this Jesus worth me living the rest of my life for? 
I mean, not an uncommon question, especially for some of the, the teens in our teen group, the, the young adults here, and, and quite frankly, for all of us every day. Is this Jesus worth living for? And I'll never forget the second semester of my senior year. Coming through Christmas break into the second s- semester, I was um, not only did soccer, but a ha- huge part of my life was wrestling. So wrestling out there, and I had a couple really good, solid Christian friends prayed together and, and started a Bible study together. But we were all in, the, in this thought process of, is Jesus worth it? And God brought me to this passage. I'm going to tell, tell you, he overwhelmed me with this passage. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. Every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, if you, like me, in any way had been discouraged that people reject Christ after he has done so much for them, this passage is for you. This passage is for me. If you've been discouraged in any way that people disparage and belittle Christ and use Jesus Christ's name so flippantly, this passage is for us. If you, like me, have been discouraged at times that people underrate a salvation that is by the gift of grace, through the life of Christ, by faith, then this passage is for you and for me. If we in any way have been discouraged at times in our lives that people mock Jesus Christ, sometimes to our face, and belittle this Jesus Christ and for his ridiculous plan of salvation, where he, how did God die? What kind of a plan is that? And if you've ever been discouraged with people who mock a Christianity that caused the, the great Godman to die on the cross for sins, Well, then this passage is for you and for me. If you've ever wanted to embrace the encouragement that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings, brothers and sisters, this passage is for us. We serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. And this morning, we're going to study about this. But real quickly, what is Paul doing in this passage? Here's what he's doing. He's articulating or I should say articulately arguing that although Jesus Christ is the supreme example of humility, oh, he is so much more than just an example. Although some in the Roman, and we've talked of this, setting the context the last couple months, although some in the, in the Roman status-craved, honor-driven world doubt his superiority because he went through a period of humiliation, How could that Jesus truly be Lord? We have here assurance that Jesus Christ has actually been bestowed with a name that is above every name, that Jesus Christ is dynamically Lord of all. That is this passage. And that is the argument of the Apostle Paul through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If we were to summarize this into a key idea, we find this transition from supreme example of humility to supreme name of honor. Very clearly, verses 5 through 8, the supreme example of humility transitions into the supreme name of honor in verses uh, 8 through 11, 9 through 11. But if we were to kind of add some more words to that, it would be something like this. Even though Christ is the supreme example of humility, we must never 
ever forget that he will forever have the supreme name of honor. A very simple key idea from this very powerful passage. But let's take some time this morning and unpack this based on these two thoughts. Because of his humble obedience to the cross, first of all, God the Father has supremely honored Christ. That's verse 9. But it doesn't stop there. Because in verses 10 and 11, we find another point that we're going to unpack today. Here it is. Every created being will supremely honor Christ. So that's where we're headed this morning in this powerful passage. Let's start with this. Because of his humble obedience to the cross, God the Father has supremely honored this Christ. What does the passage say? If you look with me at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Let's just look at this for a minute. That's the first, verse, uh, first word of this verse. Therefore, we talk of this word often. So when you see the word therefore, you want to go back and see what preceded it. Okay, to see what he's talking about. What is immediately before this? I just set this up, right, through context. Talking about the humility of the cross. It's talking of the cross. So because of the cross, something is happening here. For this reason, if you want to put, maybe some of your translations actually say this. For this reason, God has done something Therefore, because of the agony and humiliation of the cross, and we go to the next phrase there, God has. So we have this bit of transition now in the focus, the primary focus from God the Son to a brief window of focus on God the Father. Therefore, because God the Son did this, now God the Father is doing this. And what's God the Father doing? God the Father now blesses God the Son in a dynamic way. God the Father now highly exalts Jesus Christ. Not as, and I want to be clear on this, not as in compensation for his work, like, yeah, I'm going to pay you, Jesus, for what you did. But in, as proof of his divine approval. This met the plan. Your obedience met the plan. As we looked at last week in John 17, we referenced this. This Trinitarian plan, if we put it this way. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. In eternity past had this redemptive plan. Which, by the way, if you've come to Jesus Christ in faith, guess what? You're part of this plan. I love it. We're part of this plan. And Jesus Christ is obedient to this plan. Now God the Father is in high approval of this. God the Father has highly exalted him. This highly exalted aspect of this verse is awesome. To highly exalt means to raise up to a place of position and honor to the loftiest height. I mean, this is a ridiculous illustration, and I, and I hesitate even bringing this up. But what comes to mind is uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we saw this movie, The, the Lion King. Where they, I, I can't believe how they did that, that old Lion King, and they really did this. And I, I really am not in any way embracing all of the lack of theology and mistheology in that movie. But I know there's one part of it that comes to mind when we think of this. Do you remember the part when Simba's born, and then, uh, is it uh, Rafiki, holds this thing up to all this vanna, and here's Simba, and he highly exalts him. He lifts him up. You remember that? Okay, that's in all of the fronts of the videos, is this. 
Okay, that is a tiny expression of what Jesus has happened to Jesus Christ. But that's in mind here. When someone takes someone else and lifts them up to a place of honor and everyone cheers. Okay, that's in our mind here. That Jesus Christ has been highly exalted. However, there's a massive difference here because it's not Rafiki holding up Simba. It is God the Father holding up Jesus Christ, God the Son. So, so why is that important? Here's why. It's because that is so dynamic in the Roman culture. We talk often of the Roman culture. Um, I could go through and explain it, but I think that what I'm going to do is just read what this commentator says. If you'd hold, I don't like reading lengths, but this is just a, a paragraph or two designating what this Philippians Roman culture is all about. Here it is. Paul draws upon a cultural script that informed the way in which one aristocrat effectively honored another in the Roman world. Among Roman elites, to be honored by another aristocrat augmented one's own status in proportion to that aristocrat's prestige. So the one with prestige is now lifting someone else of prestige up, giving them status. The ideal in every case was to be praised by the praised man. Think of that. To be praised by the praised man. That is a big deal in Roman culture. That is to be honored by someone of the highest possible social rank. The concern is reflected in inscriptions. We find this in inscriptions historically with Philippi. Where several individuals specifically cite that the emperor... He is the one that bestowed on them an honorific title or office in order to emphasize the legitimacy of the claim. They claimed that the emperor is the one that lifted them high. There was a reason for this. Status was a public commodity in the Roman world and a grant of honor had to be publicly recognized for it to count for anything. In other words, to claim honor that the community does not recognize is to play the fool. (laughs) If you just claimed your own honor, it didn't work. It had to be made legitimate by someone else of honor. Continue and close this out. He says, everything depended in this regard upon the rank of the person uh, bestowing the honor. For when one man honored another in the ancient world, his ability to mobilize the public to affirm that grant was proportional to his own honor. So this is the culture of Roman Philippi. That one person of honor lifting up someone else's person, uh, personage of honor. Giving prestige to someone else. In this case though, in this passage, I love this. Because Paul keys off on this. The honor Christ was given didn't come from the emperor. Even in the imperial cult that they had that said emperor was God. Do you remember talking of this? It didn't come from the emperor. What does Paul say? Okay, so Jesus Christ is highly exalted and guess who exalted him? The God of all creation exalted him. The one who created all things and sustains all things. It's almost like Paul's saying, beat that. Just try. So in this honor system, someone being lifted up in prestige, shuffling out, the, uh, you know, puffing out their chest, lifting up their chin, thinking I'm all that. How Paul say, beat this. Jesus Christ is highly exalted, and who highly exalted him? 
It is the God of all creation. In case this honor, the honor of Christ was given, uh, actually, let's, let's move on to this next phrase. And before I even read this phrase, there's a, a passage that comes to mind when it comes to this bestowing and this highly exalted nature. It kind of ties them together. Ephesians 1, you could write this down. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. I just want to read this. Because when we think of Jesus Christ being highly exalted, there's two aspects of this, two events that happen as recorded in the Gospels. The first is the resurrection. This highly exalted Jesus Christ. What's the other one? The ascension to the right hand of God. The resurrection and the ascension is like God the Father highly exalting Jesus. And Ephesians 1 verse 20 and 21 says this, that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. It's a place of honor in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority. It wasn't just like a little bit above rule and authority. It was far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What is Paul saying to the church of Ephesus? Is Jesus is so highly ranked, no one comes close. Not even remotely close to the status of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And lest you think it's just this period, Paul says to the church of Ephesus, it's every period, every, every time period from creation till now and into eternity future. Jesus Christ is highly exalted. He's bestowed on him, God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This name must be thought of in terms of, especially tying this into Old Testament thoughts, to the name Lord, supreme master, ruler, owner, king. But then we also want to place ourselves back again in this Roman culture because the name in the Roman culture had so much more to do than just like a Lord. It had to do with reputation. We need to think of this in terms of reputation. Yes, lordship, but also in a very dynamic way, it's talking of reputation. You could almost say it something like this, and some of your translations might actually say this. God gave Jesus a reputation that is above all reputations. Jesus, and, and we need to remember this, Jesus is not receiving a new name. Okay, understand that. Jesus has always been divine. He's not receiving a new name, Lord. What is happening now, he's receiving an advanced reputation. His reputation is lifted up by this name. These go hand in hand. I mean, we, we're fairly familiar with this. Reputation is a fairly big deal in our culture even today. I mean, if, if we doubt this, just look at how tar hard, uh, if you Google something and a business pops up, Google business, and there's all these reviews, right? What are you looking for? Those five stars. And if not, you want to see exactly what someone said about that negative review. And, I mean, maybe I'm weird that way, but that's kind of what we do. Reputation's a big deal. If you doubt that even further, well, uh, just think politically. Uh, even this week, how many tweets from our president backing up his reputation? That's a big deal, even from the top down in America. I mean, if you even doubt that further, guess what we're in for this next year? <laughs> On the political scene, 
Almost every commercial you see is someone bad-mouthing someone else and someone backing up their own reputation. Reputation is a big deal in our culture. And that's the same with what's happening here. And Paul says to this reputation-driven Roman culture that Jesus Christ was given a reputation that exceeded all other reputations. He's given this name that is above all other names. Um, we could say more of this, but let's summarize this first point, thinking that God the Father supremely honored Christ by realizing that because of the obedient agony and humiliation of the cross, God the Father bestowed on God the Son, I love this, a name and a reputation that is above every name. Let us, let that sink in. This Jesus who we serve, this Jesus who we claim, who we follow, has a reputation that's above every reputation. Let's look at the second part of this equation in these verses. Because of his humble obedience to the cross, not only God the Father highly exalted Christ, but now we see this come down to humanity in a very tangible way. Every created being will supremely honor Christ. What's the passage say? Verse 10. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's unpack this starting with the first phrase there. So that at the name of Jesus. This is purpose or result. Some think it's purpose, some think result. I think it's both. They work hand in hand. What's the result of what just happened? What God did now works into the human race. That the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. By the way, I love the usage of the name Jesus. In this passage, you're going to find three uses referring to God the Son. Jesus Christ, Lord. When you look at that designation, a lot of times looking at Jesus, Jehovah is salvation. This is a very... Um, uh, it, it identifies more with the human aspect of Jesus, uh, of Christ, the Son of God. And what is he saying? This name Jesus, identifying with the human aspect, this name Jesus, even at this name, every knee will bow. Every knee should bow very, very clearly. This is a reference to the fact that at Jesus' name, there's going to be a universal response. We, we don't have tagged here the exact time, but I think there's other books in the Bible that tell us when this is going to happen. At the consummation of all times, there will be a time when every single knee of every single person ever created will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. We understand as you go through the whole of the scriptures that some will come to Jesus Christ prior to death. They will come to Christ in voluntary nature. This is where we call on him by grace through faith to save our souls. Those who have not come to Jesus by grace through faith clearly will be under the wrath of God. And that's not just coming because of this, from this pulpit. This is coming from the scriptures. Jesus himself says this. That every knee will bow. Some voluntary, some not voluntary. They will be confronted with the holiness of an almighty God. And they will bow the knee. The only response they can have is bow the knee in humility. Every intelligent, intelligible being 
in the entire universe for its entire existence will bow their knee in reverence and submission to Jesus. Maybe in some of your translations you'll have a little tag there, a little letter, and it, transla- it transposes you back, it takes you back to Isaiah because this is a quote from Isaiah. I'm going to go paint the whole picture in Isaiah, but what a beautiful passage from the prophet Isaiah. I'll read the passage. Isaiah 50, or 45, verses 22 and 23. Verse 22 says, Turn to me, God says through Isaiah. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And here's the quote in Isaiah 45. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance to a culture of Roman of the Roman world that believed in a three-story, and this is what they did. They believed in a three-storied universe. I mean, I don't think it's off the wall, but they believed in this three-story universe, and guess what Paul does? He goes right to it. He says, okay, if you're going to think this way, let me just share with you that every knee will bow whether there are things in heaven and on earth or under the earth. And this three-storied tier that they would have in Roman culture, Paul's like, okay, I'll even tag into the way you look at it here and let you realize that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. But this every knee will bow when we're talking about in heaven, I think this is pretty clear reference to the angelic order. This is so cool. Do you realize that angels were created by God? We don't know where in eternity past they were created, but every knee of every angel will bow. I love that. I mean, buddy, to be honest with you, though, although those who, other than the ones that followed the, the prince of darkness, Satan, every knee is bowing of these angels. I love this every day. They're Jesus' messengers. But not only in heaven, we also find this de- designation on earth. This is including every person who has ever lived, even objectors of Jesus Christ, will bow the knee to this Jesus. And then we have here, some people say, well, there's different philosophies of what happens after death. Uh, So Paul references the grave under the earth. Even those under the earth. And and there's more to this. But those who died, guess what? Just because you died doesn't exempt you from bowing the knee. We find the second... I mean, okay, we're going to refuse going into eschatology right now. But you find in the end, guess what? Even those who have died will be raised again to claim, uh, to claim the all-abundant supremacy of Jesus Christ. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here we go. Every tongue, the focus transitions from an action of bowing knee to now a verbalization that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every single person created in this world will not only share in actions of obeisance to God, but in words of obeisance to God. They will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The focus transition here from action to submission highlights this, that Jesus Christ is Lord. I I love that phrase. That Jesus... Jehovah is salvation, our humble Savior, our rescuer. Jesus Christ, what is Christ keying off on? 
He is the promised Messiah. He is the anointed one. So we're looking now at the, the, the more of a name that identified more on a human level. Now more of a name that identifies on a heavenly re- level. Jesus Christ is Master, Lord. He is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. In this context, this would stand in direct opposition to the imperial cult of the Roman world that would proclaim that Caesar is Lord. And Paul's like, oh yeah? Jesus Christ is Lord. Clearly, every single tongue will confess, every single knee will bow, will claim that promised Messiah is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And how, what, what is the result of all of this? I love this. Back to the chief end of all of creation, that God Almighty would be glorified, that his splendor and majesty would be put on full display. A fellow by the name of Hellerman, in his commentary, says this Paul carries the themes of status, honor, and prestige all the way. He carries it through the end of the narrative where, through the exaltation of Jesus, God finally receives the public recognition that is due. That God is glorified. So as we remind ourselves of this key idea, the one on the top of your page, even though Christ is the supreme example of humility, we must never forget that he will forever have the supreme name of honor. We could go on for another 40 minutes, but I need to wrap this up. So what? So what? We read a passage like this, and, you know, it gets us so excited, right, about our Savior Jesus Christ. We want to charge out of these doors. We want to, you know, like they say, charge, charge hell with a squirt gun. Yeah, that's, we're like, yeah, let's go get them, right? But in a very practical way, how is this going to apply to our week? We go out of these doors, we go home, we get up in the morning. How is Philippians 1, 9 through 11 going to transform the way you think this week, the way I think? Which, by the way, let me remind you, any passage that I speak, it comes from a heart of what God's been doing in my life this week. I mean, I, I come with sore toes on Sunday morning sometimes because he's stomping on them through the Spirit all week. My heart has been cut on. So how is this going to transform our hearts, our lives this week? And I would ask this question. You could ask this question. Have I bowed the knee to this exalted Christ? Have you come to Jesus, and first of all, in saving faith? Have you ever submitted to Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, being justified, being declared righteous? If you've never come to Jesus Christ as Lord in your life, would today be that day? Would you bow the knee to your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ today in faith? And not only that, though, when we find this indication in scriptures that we come to Jesus in justification, but then every day of our lives we are to bow the knee to the Lordship of Christ. Every morning we get up, we're to bow the knee. Um, not just in a physical way, but in a, in a very practical way, surrendering our lives every day to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is not necessary. In no way I, do I say this to um, hold myself up in any way. But I'm going to tell you, back about 15 years ago, I made a commitment to the Lord that every morning I get up as best as I could. It doesn't happen every day, but I try. Every day I would get up out of bed, I will find some place to kneel and pray. 
That prayer might last 10 seconds. It might last 10 minutes. If I fall asleep, it might last an hour and 10 minutes. But whatever the case, in my mind, it's a very tangible way to bow and surrender myself to a holy God. Will you surrender to this holy God every day this week? Surrendering yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Here's another very clear question we can ask from this passage. Do I regularly confess the exalted Christ? Are you ashamed in the slightest of the name above every name? I'm going to tell you the incredible temptation this is for all of us in our workplace, with our sports teams, in our schools, in our community, at times to sort of belittle the thought of the Lordship of Christ. There's a battle going on in this regard. There's some teens in this section here that go to school every day, that battle for the Lordship of Jesus Christ, among others who don't value that at all. We battle this in, in our workplaces, on our sports team, wherever we go. But the question is this, do you regularly confess the exalted Christ, unashamedly exalt Christ? And last question I would have would be this, is this exalted Christ, or if this exalted Christ humbled himself, because this is within context of what we're talking about, if this exalted Christ humbled himself, shouldn't I? That's the point being made here, unity through humility. If this exalted Christ humbled himself, you know what? I better re-examine my stands this week of dominance. My opinions, my preferences that take first place so often. I better examine my responses in my family, to my coworkers, on my teams, in my school. As I mentioned before, as a senior in high school, I was overwhelmed with the concept of the Lordship of Christ. I was overwhelmed with my king. I was determined to live for the king. In fact, my senior graduation, I found a song that just stuck in my head. And the, the lyrics were, I am determined to live for the king. That's the, that's the lyric. And I stood there at my senior graduation and sang a solo. <laughs> that I am going to live for the king. I am determined to live for this king. Because he's worth it. I will tell you, during that senior year, God brought me, from my junior into my senior year, God brought me to a sermon, an excerpt from a sermon that God used in a very dynamic way in my life. It came from one S.M. Lockridge, a black preacher in the mid-20th century down in San Diego that was a pastor. And this man was a, a word artist, a poet. And at the end of his hour and six-minute sermon, hour and ten-minute sermon, I believe, there's a six-minute excerpt. So we're not going to listen to the all-hour sermon. We're not even going to listen to the six-minute excerpt. We're going to listen to three minutes of it. But as we listen to this, would you be reminded with me of how amazing our Savior is? I'm going to go ahead and p- play this. I know you have to watch on the screen because some of the, the music in the background. I didn't have this music when I was uh, younger. This is Someone put this together, and I just pulled this video off. But try to read the words on the screen. And let's watch this together. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He 
graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. 